0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Adra Canada Insider. I'm your host, Frank Spangler, from the Supporter Relations Department here at Adra Canada, and we're really happy that you've joined us today. This is the podcast where we meet and talk to some of the wonderful people who work here at Adra Canada and uh, hear some of the fascinating stories about the things that they have seen as they have gone out and visited some of the ADRA projects around the world. And uh, in today's episode, we're going to learn about what ADRA is doing to help a people who are currently living in crisis. But uh, before we do that, let's find out who we have around our table today.
1: I'm Kayla Casey. I also work for Supporter Relations.
2: I'm Steve Matthews, and the Executive Director
0: for ADRA Canada.
3: I'm Anita Odondi. I'm the Emergency Program Director.
0: All right, and the three of you are here today for this special podcast episode on the Rohingya crisis that is one of the emergency projects that ADRA Canada is working with right now. And uh, the timing of this recording today is interesting because... It is the one-year anniversary of the crisis. I know that it seems like uh, such a short time has passed since we first heard of the Rohingya and uh, their flight from their homeland into Bangladesh. But it was about one year ago that this crisis began. And the three of you here have just recently visited the camps, and I wanted to have you in today to hear firsthand from you what you saw while you were there. Uh, But before going into that, I think it would be good to find out a little bit more about uh, you, Steve. Uh, This is the first time that we have had you here on the podcast, and I know that uh, many of our listeners would like to get to know you uh, a little better, hear about your life story. Steve Matthews, for those of you who don't know, is the new executive director here at ADRA Canada. Steve, we're very happy to have you on our program today. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, how it is that you came to join our ADRA Canada family.
2: Absolutely. So I've actually spent the majority of my career working as a consultant in private industry so coming to ADRA Canada has actually been a little bit of a, a change in uh, in direction for me, but it uh, is, is actually allows me to use the skills that I've developed in the past to this ministry. ADRA is a ministry of the Adventist Church that I've been very interested in for a number of years. I've followed ADRA. I've always loved when ADRA's come to our camp meetings. I've always wanted to learn more about ADRA, and it's something that I have uh, had a keen interest in for a number of years. I am an environmental engineer. A lot of the work that we do through ADRA actually does focus on environment as well and the environmental impacts of uh, many of the the situations that we deal with. So I feel that I'm actually able to use my skills from environmental engineering more than actually probably what I was doing in the past. I also have a background as a project management professional, and that's what I spent most of my career doing, building anything from schools, car dealerships, gas stations, a wide variety of, of different types of projects. So being able to uh, to take those skills, a lot of those skills are transferable because at ADRA Canada, we have a focus on projects. A lot of the work that we do is very much project-based, project-related. So it's uh, able to, to take those skills and bring them in. I was actually approached by one of the board members of the ADRA Canada board when they were looking for a new executive director. wanted to know if I'd be interested in putting my name forward for the position. So it was interesting. It actually wasn't uh, a role that I had pursued. Right. Uh, I, was, I was actually asked to, to put my name forward for it. So I said, yeah, let's see, let's see where it goes. Never really thought that it would actually end up with me being the, the new executive director, but here I am. Went through the screening process, the interviews, and uh, it's the end of uh, December that I was uh, notified that I was selected for the role. And I started here on March 1st of 2018.
0: Well, we're so thankful that you answered the call to serve Mm. here at Adder Canada and to look forward to working together with you. Prior to this uh, assignment or taking on this new role, had you done a lot of international travel?
2: Uh, No, actually uh, the only... International travel, I've done it. was for Homes for Hope, which is a group that they were working out of the San Diego area, but they were building homes in Mexico. That's about as international as it's gotten for me. Is is going to to Mexico to to build a home there. Uh, beyond that, all of my career has been spent Canada and the U S. That's uh, that's it. So the first time ever going overseas was when I started here with Adra. I had never been to Africa, never been to Asia before. Uh, since starting here, within the first couple of months, I've made it to Europe, uh, Africa, and Asia. Wow. So it's been, been quite interesting. <laughs> a baptism by
0: fire. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, and today, we are going to focus in on a recent trip that you have taken to Bangladesh. And all three of you here today have uh, recently been to the refugee camps where Adra Canada is working in Bangladesh. So let's maybe just jump right into that. And uh, maybe, Anita, you can start us out with uh, telling our listeners what Adra Canada is doing there uh, in the refugee camps in Bangladesh.
3: When I told some friends that I'm doing another podcast on Bangladesh, they asked me to tell them whether it was Rohingya or Rohingya. Because that's where I I left off last time, right? On the last podcast, (laughs) On the last podcast, and we found out it's Rohingya.
0: Oh, so we have been saying it wrong.
3: We have been saying (laughs) it wrong, but uh, the Rohingya themselves recognize that the rest of the world says Rohingya. Okay. And they are okay with it. Hmm. Okay. But they (laughs) themselves uh, call themselves Rohingya, and they are Rohingya. So we could use either, I guess. Okay. Yes. Well, um, I
0: always like to be as correct as possible. So yes. from now on, I'm switching <laughs> to Rohingya. Yeah,
3: that's good. I, I yeah, I wanted to ask that. And I'm so glad we found mm. a Rohingya young man who speaks very good English, who understood English very well. And he's his son who told us this. You so know, You know, the
2: interesting part about that young man was that he was just there. He saw us and he just wanted to help. He said, yeah. hey, would you like my help? And he just came with us. He spent probably about 30 minutes with us. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: He was Washing his feet to go to the mosque. Mm -hmm. Because you have to wash before entering the mosque. There were prayers at that time. And he was at the tap washing his feet. Mm -hmm. Then he saw us walking. And he asked if we we needed help. Yeah, he translated for us very eloquently. Wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Adra in uh, Bangladesh is doing a lot of work in the camps. Adra Bangladesh itself is in one of the biggest camps, Kutupalong Camp, and Jamtoli Camp. ADRA Canada is supporting the work in Jamtoli Camp, and what we have received funds for is water, sanitation and hygiene, protection and shelter which means we are constructing new shelters, we are repairing shelters for the families whose shelters have been destroyed by the weather, and we are also supporting sanitation and hygiene, educating people on how to deal with the intense sanitation and hygiene situation under this circumstance in a camp as well as providing site work for sanitation. So you see, initially, when we were writing the proposal, there was a lot of need for non-food items, for hygiene kits, for women's sanitation kits, for men's sanitation kits. And when we received the money about four to six months later, many organizations had provided these items already and were still providing these items. But the need, the biggest need... At the time when we received the money was to help direct sewage to create drainages to create walkways otherwise people were walking in um very non-sanitary, non-sanitary conditions, conditions. Right. um the latrines mm-hmm. that they have because of the volume of the people and lack of space are overflowing so that was the need at the time and we requested the camp coordinators We requested the Canadian government, International Humanitarian Assistance Arm, to change from these items, which were already being received, to site management for better sanitation and hygiene, and they accepted. So that's what we are doing in the camp.
0: Maybe we should just back up a little bit and remind our listeners of the reason why the people are finding themselves in a refugee camp.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the Rohingya people, they're from Myanmar, formerly Burma, and they have left mostly by foot, some by makeshift boats to come across a a bit of a treacherous area. They have left due to civil conflict in their home country. The challenge at this point is that They're currently in Bangladesh. However, the desire is to allow them to go back to their homes. When I was there, just doing a little bit of discussion with some of the people and finding out the conditions, many of them have had their villages destroyed. Mm. There were about 450 Rohingya villages in Myanmar. At the time I was there, it was estimated that about 260 of their villages were destroyed. Wow. So... The difficulty with that is that they don't actually have a home to go back to anymore. It's not like they fled and they can go back to their homes once this is finished. And that's where, right now, the concern is how long are they going to be there. The work that we're doing now and and the services that we're providing all have to be temporary. So that means that we can't actually construct anything that would be of a more permanent structure.
0: How many people are we talking about that have... Kind of descended on this very small area in Bangladesh.
2: Well, I've I've heard numbers ranging from about seven hundred thousand up to one million people. Wow! Mm -hmm. So, for listeners here in Canada, that's basically you take the population of Nova Scotia, yeah, and just plop them down into somewhere that like
0: Camp Pugwash. Bring everybody to Camp Pugwash. Yeah, take
2: all of Nova Nova Scotia, Scotia, move them to Camp Pugwash, and say you Mm -hmm. set up here.
1: And this is in such a short period of time, too. This isn't over a year or two years, this is within weeks and months, Yeah, there was such a huge influx of people who came into this camp, the government didn't know what to do with them Yeah,
2: Absolutely, and right now when we were there, I'm sure you saw the same thing Kayla when, mm-hmm. when you were over, because Kayla was over following the, the visit that Anita and I had the Bangladesh military are there trying to help coordinate things, the Bangladeshi government have coordinators from from government officials as well that are there trying to to pull things together,
1: mm-hmm. the
2: project that we're working on, which is in Jamtoli, it's a camp of about 70,000 in that camp, that, mm-hmm. that one area. But there are estimated to be about 35 non-government organizations similar to ADRA that are working in the area, in that one camp. So coordinating 35 different organizations to make sure that there isn't overlap of right. work, that the needs are being met is is challenging. When I think of what Anita was just talking about with how we showed up, we had a proposal that had been submitted to the Canadian government. By the time, you know, the, it takes time to go through the approval process when the funds were made available. We did realize when we got there that what we were carrying in our proposal didn't necessarily meet all the needs that uh, that were current. Right. Um, so we were given approval to change some of that. As a, an environmental engineer, I've, you know, done studies in wastewater management and water treatment. I've actually, one of my last projects that I worked in before joining ADDR was for a wastewater treatment facility. Where you have everything, it's all underground pipes. You know, it's your typical Canadian scenario where everything's all connected, takes it to an area outside of town where the wastewater is treated and then discharged. Well, here we don't have that luxury. It's very hilly. We have latrines that are installed on the sides of hills. Mm -hmm. So they leach out. You've got leaching from these latrines. One thing that our listeners here can't experience is the smells. (laughs) When I stepped out of the vehicle at the area where the camp was, um, where people were actually living, the smells are something that I'd never smelled before. We know that diseases are transported by mosquitoes and flies and those sorts of things. That's a prime way for diseases to spread. Well, as you're walking through the camp, you see stagnant water. Right. Which has uh, the only way I can describe it, it's like a black sludge sitting on the water. Flies <laughs> covering this mm. by the the thousands, and then right beside that is somebody's home. Yeah, mm. the and that home is basically a bamboo framed tarp.
0: Mm-hmm. Right,
2: that's the conditions that people are living in there. When we look at the shelters, one one family that I met with. There were six of them living in this one tent. It would be the size of probably a typical bedroom for someone here in Canada. And you had six people, husband, wife, and four children, all sleeping in this Mm. one area. It's a dirt floor. And they were trying to strengthen their shelters because they're also hitting monsoon season. And I believe that Kayla may Mm. have seen more rain than what we did when we were there. But when it rains there, the rate that the rain comes in and how quickly the water rises mm-hmm. is is just amazing. The density of the residents there—they're just one on top of the other—with right. a pathway wide enough that you know two people can't actually walk shoulder to shoulder between the homes. That's yeah. how tight wow. the, this place mm-hmm. is developed. Mm-hmm. So you know mm-hmm. there there are a lot of issues and challenges that. So come you were there that. in May. We were there in May,
1: and mm-hmm. and Kayla. I was there in July during their monsoon season, so during their heavy rain season. And Steve is here talking about the conditions of the camp and the mud and the rain and... It's almost these muddy ponds just in the middle of the camps that these people have to walk through. And I remember this one gentleman came up to me and he was talking to the translator and was just like begging for more roads for them to walk on because he wanted to go to the mosque to pray. But when he walked through the water, his legs would be so itchy from the bugs and the diseases that are in the water there. It's very hard to witness when you're there. And the monsoon rains, you know, they're causing flooding, they're causing landslides and disease outbreaks. It's hard to see that people live in these conditions.
3: Yeah, and Adra is doing some of those roads, Mm -hmm. which is a blessing.
1: So when we arrived there, we went to see the new shelters that they had built. And it was on top of this, this very muddy hill. Surrounding the hill were these muddy ponds. And they had these bridges built almost out of mud and it was fairly big surrounding this entire hill and it only took the people there 10 days to build i couldn't believe it they had done such hard work building this for their community through Azra of course and you could see the impact that it was having on the community already there it saves
3: lives it does because if a child falls into one of those ponds they could drown Mm -hmm. yeah
2: Another thing I'd like to bring up that I saw in one of the areas, so when we arrived, the purpose for Anita and my trip was to actually start the ADRA Canada project. So we were meeting with the ADRA Bangladesh team who were going to be executing the project with the funds that were being provided through ADRA Canada. So we were literally going through doing assessment of what are the existing conditions before we had started any work. We then were taken by ADRA Bangladesh to a part of the camp that they had been working in, I believe the funding was provided by UNHCR. So when we went to the part of the camp that ADRA Bangladesh was already working in, the difference was actually quite significant. So when we go to the the area that ADRA Canada's funding will be going toward, we saw just mud pathways, open ditches, sitting raw wastewater just pooled beside where they're living beside spaces where children are playing. It was it was very, very poor condition. When we left, one of the things we said was, we cannot have this continue in a part of a camp that we're working in. We went to the other section where the UNHCR funding was being used and, and where Adra Bangladesh was working. And what we had completed there. We actually saw people, we saw some of the refugees digging ditches. They were improving drainage. As we were walking through, they were actually, there were about six men that were there working to improve the drainage at that time. It was very interesting to see because you could see the water just r- starting to run away. Mm. You could see the water being removed from where people are living. And that will save lives by doing that. This is not something that just is a minor improvement. Then we also saw an area where they had some bridges made, and some walkways. The area of the camp that we were walking in, they actually had bamboo walkways made. So the people didn't have to be walking on dirt. They were walking on these bamboo walkways. But what that also did is the ditches that they were making were running underneath the bamboo walkways. So now you've not only started moving the water away, but you've also separated the people from where the water was draining through. So it does a couple things because it gets them away from having to walk on this mud. I didn't see swarms of flies in that part of the camp. Mm. It was very, very different. So when we left, that's what we said, is we really wanted to have that similar impact occur where we were working at in the Gemtoli camp. We want to be able to say, you know, this is where ADRA works and be able to see a noticeable difference between where Adra is versus the other parts of the camp. Right.
3: It's hard to realize when you're in Canada that these people have very, very few to no options on improving their situation. Mm-hmm. Because they run from their homes in Myanmar for safety, to save their lives. They run with just the clothes they had on, probably. And by the time they reached, those were worn out, the shoes were lost in the mud, uh, coming to Bangladesh, they are given us a, a portion of land to all be there, and they rely on aid. they rely on on relief. They have absolutely no way of um, improving their situation. and even if they did, the the mental and psychosocial turmoil that they have can hardly allow them to function. A normal life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so when we go as agencies apart from working with them to improve the roads the walkways there's also a lot of psychosocial support ADRA is uh, constructing some child friendly spaces mm-hmm. and these are not only used for children to play and live a normal life but also for adults to meet women's groups Men's groups to just sit and talk about their challenges and possible solutions and maybe share a meal. It's hard to think that people will live in a place, you know, that is dirty and smelling and full of unhygienic conditions and not do anything about it. But one, they don't have the resources. And two, for the things that should be done that don't need resources, they are mentally exhausted
2: So one of the things that we don't want to do is go in and tell the people what they need. We want them to let us know what their needs are. We set up some focus groups to be able to meet with. One group was a group of women that we met with. And then another group was a group which was a combination of women and men. They were in two different blocks of the camp. So this way we were able to get an idea of the differences between the different blocks as well. So one area that we went to, we met with, uh, so this is the one where it was a group of men and women. We asked what their biggest needs were. And in this area of the camp, they actually didn't have any, you provide them with food, but they didn't have a way to actually properly cook it and Mm -hmm. prepare it. So the camps are so tight that they don't want to have open flames because if if a fire were to start out in one portion, it would just spread through entire areas. There's just no way to, to really stop it there. So what they've done in some parts of the camp are set up kind of community kitchens. So in the community kitchen, you're probably looking at 40 or 50 families that have to try to schedule use of the kitchen, but at least they have somewhere to cook. In this one area of the camp, they didn't have anywhere to cook. And they didn't have sanitary ways to actually be able to prepare their food. There's one lady that we talked to, she was the one that was bringing this forward. She said, that uh, her husband had actually just died, you know, from the unsanitary conditions and the inability to be able to prepare food properly because this area of the camp didn't have any of that. Her husband was 35 years old and he died from watery diarrhea. Mm-hmm. And so she was left with her and her children to try to fend for themselves in this camp. That's just so sad. absolutely. I mean, stories that you just don't even think of i mean if if you come down with that here in canada you're treated you're taken care of and it's very rare to die from something like that but it's actually quite common there
0: Mm -hmm. anita i was wondering in your work for ADRA over the years you have seen a lot of emergency situations been to a lot of refugee camps uh you were working after the tsunami and then the uh typhoon
3: in myanmar in
0: myanmar and then haiti after the earthquake Mm -hmm. How does this compare, do you think, uh, to the situations that you have seen in some of these other places?
3: Yeah, the difference between those other places and the situation in Bangladesh is that in Indonesia, in Myanmar, in Haiti, a disaster had happened in the country and people were in their home country, you know, facing a difficult situation. And then aid came in and um, support and try to build from where they were and to continue with them until they got on their feet in their country. The challenge with the Rohingya in Bangladesh is that in Myanmar, where they consider home, they are not wanted. It's a blessing that they have been uh, taken in Bangladesh, but Bangladesh is looking forward to them going back Mm. to Myanmar because there are poor people in Bangladesh that need help. That are, you know, wondering how come we need help, but the help is going to to these people who are foreigners. So they have no home, which can seem hopeless. Mm -hmm. Because what's your light at the end of the tunnel? Because sometimes when you're going through a difficult situation, you think that it will get better when I get to go home. But then if home... All you hear is death happening. Mm -hmm. For example, in Haiti, we arrived a few days after the earthquake and you could see the sadness, the no smiles in the town, one funeral after another, you know, clearing of debris, just sorrow. And then with time, you begin to see a shop opening up here, you know, smiles happening, music playing in the village. And with time, you see life coming back to normal. Right. But in Bangladesh, unlike the rest of the camps around the world where we are moving away from camps, actually, to Mm -hmm. settlements uh, for people to have more dignity, for Bangladesh situation, it just seems to be stepping back in where the rest of the world is progressing. And it makes me wonder, how can we give these people some sort of hope? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Is there any hope at this point? Are they looking forward to returning home? Are they talking about going back home?
3: We have uh, read the papers when we were there. The Myanmar government had signed something to say, we want the Rohingya back. I don't know where that will will end, but um, our role is to support them from wherever they are, to have a dignified life by having the basic needs of life.
1: When I was there, it was mentioned to me that they are losing hope because they had expected to go back a lot earlier than they have been now. Although they are losing hope, they are finding a way to make a life in the camp. You do see shops set up when you enter the camp. They're really trying to make a living there for themselves. One thing that one of the Adra Bangladesh staff mentioned to me was like, you throw a rock, they will pick it up and find a way to use it. Mm -hmm. They're really trying to find, to make a way for themselves.
2: As you mentioned that, it brings to mind the change that we tried to do with the drainage and improving the drainage there. One of the things that we're doing is using the locals for that. Mm -hmm. So it actually gives us an opportunity to hire them. One of the pieces of feedback that we were given that they really needed was access to funds, access to be able to get some money. By implementing the piece of work that we're doing, we're able to hire more people now than what we originally intended. It actually does give them a source of income, and they're very happy to be able to have that because when they have the money, they can go and get specifically what they need. Mm -hmm. One example that was given to us was every month they need to fill up the tank for gas, the Propane. Propane. So now that they have this money, they're actually able to buy propane so they can continue cooking. Without the access to money, it's much more difficult for them Mm -hmm. to get that. It's
1: not Mm -hmm. something you think about either, right? When you think of the necessities, you know, you think of food and sanitation, but you don't think of the things that may need to fuel that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well,
2: that's the thing. When you look at even when you see advertisements on TV, you see people going with a bag of food over Mm -hmm. their back. And so, okay, it's great, we've given them rice and lentils, Mm -hmm. but eating raw rice and lentils isn't very
0: Mm -hmm. appetizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so you say you're hiring some of the refugees themselves to help with the ditches, the drainage, and that type of thing. So how do they get paid? How does that work?
3: So we have uh, something called cash for work where we have to do the activities that we talked about to benefit the community. But instead of getting external help from the nearby villages or from the towns, we work with the Rohingya themselves to do the unskilled labor. And sometimes there is skilled labor even in the camps, because some of them went to school or have experience to do something. So we work with them and pay them a daily rate that has been agreed upon by the different organizations there that way they get to improve their conditions as well as get some money
0: so these refugees are they able to make income outside the camp can they go out into the country and and uh, make some money that way to bring back uh, something for their families
3: Unfortunately not. They are not allowed to go outside the camp Mm -hmm. to work Mm -hmm. or to look for any kind of resources, Mm -hmm. even to look for firewood or something like that. They they should stay within the camp and wait for aid. Mm
1: -hmm. And one thing, Anita, that you were mentioning earlier was about, you know, when they came here from Myanmar, they only had, like, the clothes on their backs. They didn't have any personal belongings with them. So that also means they didn't have a passport. They didn't have a visa or anything. Um, They had no identification cards at all to even say who they were. So that also kind of hinders them from being able to work outside of the camp in Bangladesh at all.
0: So what about the babies that are born in the camp? Are they Bangladeshi or...
1: That's a good question.
2: <laughs> well, this is,
0: this
1: is poses, a challenge. Yeah, it poses another problem. Yeah,
0: many Many of the
2: children, even some of the children that have come from Myanmar into Bangladesh, and now the ones that are in Bangladesh, getting a birth certificate for the children is something that is proven to be a challenge. There are certain requirements that have been placed that have actually prevented some of them from being able to obtain a birth certificate. So now you've got these children that do not have a birth certificate and likely will never be able to get one. Mm -hmm. So they literally are a stateless Mm
1: -hmm. people.
2: Citizen of the world.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to mention that even when they were in Myanmar, they were a Muslim stateless minority. So when they were there, they didn't have Mm -hmm. rights to land. They didn't have health care. They didn't have this basic rights that people have when they belong to a country. So now that they're in Bangladesh, they have an even more complicated situation because they don't belong anywhere. Mm.
2: Education is a challenge as well because they don't have access to education. I'm very big on education. I really believe that education is the key to a brighter future. And they don't have even access to education. So how do you improve your conditions when you can't even be educated Mm. To be able to get out of the situation that you're in, mm-hmm. you just get stuck into this never-ending cycle. And this is the challenge now: is we we have an entire population that is growing up without access to education.
0: Anita, you were me. you were mentioning how the project that we're conducting there includes psychosocial support. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on that. What is Adra Canada doing to provide psychosocial support to? These people that are coming in with such trauma?
3: Well, ADRA is hiring counselors as well as uh, constructing the child friendly spaces that I spoke about Mm -hmm. and just encouraging and creating awareness that we have people you can talk to Mm -hmm. if you want to talk. But that always comes with stigma sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. because we as human beings, you know, need to be tough when we are going through difficult situations. So you, um, they create games or call for meetings, and just spend time talking about these are the issues. How do we sort them out? Or creating activities to keep them busy, mm-hmm. because an idle mind often realizes more the situation around.
0: What about the security in the camp? What kinds of challenges mm-hmm. are people facing uh, in terms of security?
2: One of the challenges there is with the density of people, then there are many people that are arriving there that have lost their parents. The oldest person in the household is still a child themselves. There are many women that are showing up who have lost their husbands, so they don't have a man with them. And then when you think about you're in a place where street lighting has not been able to be installed to a point that gives good lighting levels at night, you're living in shelters that are difficult to maintain securely. Right, You don't have a deadbolt on your door to be able yeah. to lock at night. So something that we typically do here is when you go to bed, you lock all your doors. Yeah. Very difficult to do that. So when we met with the camp in charge, who's the individual assigned by the Bangladeshi government to coordinate right. all of the, the components of the camp, one of the items that was discussed was also on security and safety. A real focus on trying to improve the security of those that are there because this has developed so quickly that to have good security in place right away is very difficult. One of the focuses is to really try to minimize the amount of gender-based violence that occurs. Unfortunately, there have been many studies that have also shown that in situations such as this, unfortunately, it tends to bring out the worst in some people as well. Mm -hmm. So the amount of trafficking of children is a danger. It's a, it's a concern. So uh, activities are being completed, such as installation of solar lights, having security in place. The presence of the Bangladeshi army has also been there. The military is there to try to improve security. But there's always concern and dangers related to especially the most vulnerable women and children that are in these camps to ensure that they're kept safe. So it is a, definitely a big concern. And there are groups that are working in the area that are trying to really improve security levels. It is a major concern in, in a place like this. Yeah.
0: What a difficult situation. We just uh, continue to pray that uh, the situation will be resolved and they'll be able to go back home and rebuild their villages. All right. Well, we have come to that part of our podcast where we ask our guests about some interesting experience they have had while traveling to the field. And since we have already heard from Kayla and Anita about this on previous podcasts, I think that we need to hear from Steve today. Steve, you mentioned that uh, in the short time that you have been working here as the executive director, you have traveled to Europe, uh, Asia, and Africa. We're curious to hear if you have had some travel adventure or experience that you could share with us today.
2: Absolutely. So I'm going to actually take us back to Uganda. Uh, Uganda is a very beautiful country. Really enjoyed my time there. And Anita's, I'm sure, quite pleased with that because yes. Anita is actually I'm doing a dance. Yes. <laughs> so we were traveling. We traveled out to the field, and then when we were coming
0: back, so they had us in. This yeah. was also a refugee camp situation. This, this is another
2: our, refugee our, our camp. Settlement. 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 This is a settlement. Yes. Should we
0: say maybe the difference between a camp and a settlement, Anita? Um,
3: a camp is what we just described. For Bangladesh, a Whereas settlement... only one
0: person can walk through the alleyway at a yes, time. Yes, yes. Yeah.
3: And it's all no order, just cramped together. A settlement is when there's there's a plan and there's a larger area of land and people are partitioned according to some standards. There's enough space for a latrine. There's enough space for a home or a shelter. There's space for a small garden. There's space for a kitchen. And they can construct transitional or more permanent structures.
0: Okay. And that's the situation in Uganda. In People Uganda, yes. coming from South Sudan as refugees are given a little plot of land where they can try and grow enough food to yes. sustain
3: themselves. they can live a dignified and near to normal life.
0: Okay, yeah. so tell us what happened on your journey to the settlement.
2: So they had us staying in relatively nice accommodations through, through the whole way. And then one, one stop, we, it was a small community, and I got to experience the Canadian equivalent of a $7 a night hotel. Okay. <laughs> so we went in, and first they asked me, they said, to the left are the squatting toilets, to the right are the sitting toilets, so which one would you prefer? <laughs> so I went to the right, and uh, I got into my room, and once I got inside, I saw my gecko friends crawling around <laughs> on the ceilings. And then when I went into the washroom, I got to see my new little frog friends oh. that uh, <laughs> they were accommodating in the washroom. When you flush the toilet, the frogs would actually come out from through the cracks. Oh, dear. So it was, uh, it, it was an interesting experience. Eco-friendly. Yes, it was eco-friendly for sure. This is actually right off the Nile River. So many people don't know that the Nile starts in Uganda and uh, flows north from there. So it was actually just off the Nile River, which is a fairly humid, warm area. And the generators only ran so often. So uh, we'd, uh, throughout the night, the fan that we had to to bring some relative coolness to us, that also shut off. So it was quite interesting.
3: (laughs) And then there was the rain.
2: Yes, the rain was very interesting. We went into the restaurant Nice little spot we went in, and I ate a lot of beans and rice while I was in, yeah. in You're vegetarian, isn't I'm, it? Right? I'm, I'm vegetarian, and the option was typically beans and rice. It was very good. Very, or rice uh, and beans. Or rice and beans, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it was the other option. <laughs> So really, it was, it, was, it was good, though. But we were sitting there. We heard the rain come, and it started raining really hard. And we said, yeah, we're going to wait till the rain subsides before we go out. So we were sitting in there for about 45 minutes, and then the rain subsided. So we said, okay, let's get ready to head back. We went out. There was a new river <laughs> in front of the restaurant. And in order to get out of the restaurant, we had the choice of either walking in knee-deep water. That's how much water had fallen in 45 minutes. It was a, literally a river running down by the road, and so we actually climbed over a balcony to walk across a little walkway to get over uh, to the road again. So it was, uh, I was an ancient experience. I've never witnessed that kind of rainfall in my life. So it was, uh, but even it was even being from Newfoundland. Even being from <laughs> Newfoundland. Well, see, this is the thing in Newfoundland. It just rains all the time. So we just have a steady rain. (laughs) So when it rains, we can get rain for for days on end, but it's just more of a steady rain, Mm. not torrential. Wow. Quite the same. Yeah. Yeah. Newfoundland does get hit by tropical storms and sometimes a, a category one or two hurricane. That may compare somewhat mm. to to the rains that I saw in Africa. However, the drainage is designed a little more mm. to accommodate those right. high rain flows, right. whereas there it's it's not uh, it doesn't accommodate the high rainfalls.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that experience, and I'm sure that as you continue serving here at Adra Canada, that you will find many more like this down the road.
2: I'm quite confident that I will. <laughs>
0: We appreciate uh, you uh, dedicating your talents uh, here at ADRA Canada and uh, serving in this way. All right, we've come to that uh, time in our podcast where we take your questions. And if you have a question about what ADRA does out in our world and uh, why we do the things that we do, please send in your questions to us at uh, stayintouch@adra.ca. That's stay in touch at adra.ca and if we read your question on air we will send you a book that we have prepared here at adra canada on uh, how adra canada got started the life story of john howard and uh, we'll send that to you as our gift so please send us your questions and today's question is how does adra decide what type of support to provide in times of emergencies maybe steve we could have you start us out on that
2: yeah absolutely and, and that is Something that is always a challenge, you want to ensure that you're providing the right type of support to someone. You don't want to give someone something they don't need.
1: Mm -hmm. Or it could even hurt them in the long run.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the principles that we do work with is do no harm. And we, you know, there is that possibility of going in and providing what you believe is is good aid for an area that actually, when you come out, it's worse that you went there than when you began (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we always want to make sure that that's not something that we do. When we go in, there are certain areas that we work in. Uh, we do provide water resources, sanitation, you know, providing latrines, sometimes it may be food aid, shelter, uh, security. It is a, a coordinated effort. So there are other organizations that do similar work to us that may be doing some work in a certain camp as well. So we always want to try to ensure that the work that we're doing complements the work that right. others are doing right. in the camp. And that's always coordinated by, could be the local government or the UN, who are identifying what's needed. Say, for example, if we come in and we're going to provide water. So we're going to drill some wells. We install uh, hand pumps. We would actually work with the the local... Group that is coordinating the camp to determine, well, where, to, where is the well required? They may say that, you know, a certain section of camp, the people have to walk a kilometer and a half to get water, which seems like a long distance, but unfortunately, some of these areas, that's what they're doing. Mm. So they would actually identify, okay, we need wells in these locations to be able to improve access to water. So we would. Work in, in that capacity to try to do that could be that, uh, you know, latrines are needed in a certain area. So we typically would work with the locals as well. On the Bangladesh example, we had talked about how we had went in with the proposal. By the time we got there, the needs had actually changed. Right. Thankfully, the Canadian government, when we get funding through the Canadian government. They do allow us some flexibility to change what we're going to do to actually meet the needs. At that point in time, that's where being able to meet with the the people that are actually receiving the support is is very important because they can let us know
0: what they need as well. And that coordination, I'm sure, is probably uh, just as important or maybe more important when the emergency situation is spread out over many provinces. Like in the case of Nepal, for example, when they had the large earthquake that covered a large section of Nepal that coordination would help determine which agency is responsible for which district or villages, correct?
2: Absolutely. So when we go in, typically the way that the response gets organized is an organization will be responsible for coordinating a certain portion of the camp. So you could have the camp divided up into 20 different sections. Sometimes ADRA does coordinate a, a portion of the camp. We would actually have other NGOs that would uh, would work with us in that area, but we would be responsible for the coordination of that camp.
3: We also consider the capacity that we have as ADRA. Normally, the, the Canadian government uh, calls for proposals around October, November for different crises, short-term and long-term, mostly the, the protracted long-term crisis. So we work with the country office like ADRA Bangladesh or ADRA Nepal, to find out the need on the ground through those, that coordination, through talking to the people in need. They say we need water, we need latrines, we need shelter, we need cash. And then we evaluate ourselves as ADRA and say in ADRA Nepal, in ADRA Bangladesh, what is our capacity? What is our experience? What skill do we have? Because the list of needs is always long. We will select best on the list of needs. Our capacity to provide, and the coordination of other agencies. What are they doing in order to avoid the duplication? So when we put that triangle together, then we determine what we are going to do. However, by the time the funds come, you might find that whatever we said we are going to do, because it's always an urgent need, and sometimes even a life-saving need. Someone else, some another organization met that need immediately to save lives, and then we'll revisit. So we just don't come with the money and do what we said to do because we got the money for it. We check again, is this still current, as Steve was explaining. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do whatever needs to be done, still based on our capacity. If we are the lead of that camp or that settlement, we will advocate and coordinate with others, you know, to right. bring in health, for example, if we right. don't have the capacity for health in that country. Okay. And sometimes if there's a need that no one else can manage, we will outsource from our Adra network, which is a very wide network. Mm-hmm. We will get some expertise from outside and bring it to the country to to help a specific
0: need. Very good. So it's, it's good to have that big Adra network to draw on expertise from others.
3: The ADRA network is very, very helpful because there are, there will always be in that region uh, people who know the culture, who might even know the language, who can immediately come in and help.
2: Right. The ADRA network is, we actually are, have country offices in just over 140 countries around the world. Wow. So that'll give you a, a, a sense of Just how widespread we really are. Different countries are stronger in different areas, so we can pull on that capacity.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that question. And uh, we would like to encourage more people to send in their questions. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of the podcast, or if there was something that you heard on the podcast that you would like to know more about please send us your questions. You can email us at stayintouch, that's all one word, stayintouch, at adra.ca. And uh, if you are listening to this podcast because you found it uh, on iTunes or one of the Android platforms, we would like to invite you to find that button on your app that will lead you to our webpage that we have set up to go with this episode. If you don't see a button link on your app or device, you can always find us at ADRA.ca. Just uh, click on the Our Stories menu option there and find the link to the podcast section. And uh, you will be able to uh, link to a page that shows all the photographs that go with our uh, podcast episodes. And for today's episode, we will be putting up a number of images from the Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh so that uh, you can see for yourself what it is like for the people that are living there. If you like these episodes and you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on the Android platform. You can go to your favorite podcast app and search for ADRA Canada Insider and uh, you'll find us there. Just hit subscribe, and that way you'll be notified each time we release a new episode, and uh, we're doing that about once each month. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, we look forward to having you come back for our next episode of the ADRA Canada Insider. So long for now.
3: Thank you. (laughs) Thank
0: you.